This is a talk that Dennis Johnson gave at the 1999 Yellow Bay Writers Conference at the University of Montana. Its title is, Why I Don't Give Craft Lectures. My two cents is that he starts out a little bit slow with a overview of what he's reading and his viewpoints on it, and then gets into the really meaty stuff around the 15-minute mark. Enjoy, and I really invite you to listen to the whole thing. My name is Seth Harwood, and if you're looking for more of my work, you can find it at sethharwood.com or patreon.com slash sethharwood. Oh, good afternoon. Um, well, I recognize many of my students. Um, some of you I don't know. I'm Dennis Johnson. Uh, and I'm giving you a craft lecture. How do you like it? We're going pretty good. I'll tell you, I, uh, I'm sorry I'm late. I've been consistently late to everything at this conference. And I don't think of myself as a tardy person, but uh, maybe I'm getting to be one. I uh, was reminded this morning that the title of this lecture is Why I Don't Give Craft Lectures. But I had actually, I mean, I really don't give craft lectures. I'd even forgotten what the title was. Um, and what I probably, I think what I'll do is probably give more of an art lecture. Let's put it that way. I don't think of myself as being terribly concerned with uh, craft and the nuts and bolts of uh, what I'm doing. But as I, you know, just like four minutes ago, that's why I'm four minutes late. It occurred to me that I actually do have a pretty steady engagement with concerns of that kind. I just don't really notice it as much as I once did. Um, so I think I will start with a very brief craft lecture, and then we'll get over into the art part. Let me show you. All I'm going to do is show you what I believe. I always read these things. I'm always, I always have a current issue of the local nickel shopper or thrift saver or, you know, the, whatever. Because I like to imagine myself owning the things in these newspapers. And I, it just, this and the police report in our local, local paper put me in touch with the fact that I'm not alone, that all these hearts are throbbing out there in the jungle. They're, and they're, you know, they're selling their boats and guns and they're emptying out their bathrooms and bedrooms and putting everything in their garage and selling them, selling all the items. And uh, also they have the introductions. I love to read the introduction parts where people describe themselves. Um, and they have, a, so they have a lot of initials now that I don't, I don't, I don't know what they all stand for, but, but I, I just like to be assured that there are people out there doing things and caring about things because I spend quite a bit of time in an office where they aren't around, it's just me. So I'm always reading one of these things. This is, I have five books that I'm currently reading. I'm generally reading about five or six, and I never finish any of them. Um, 
two of these I actually bought new. This is one of them, Cicero. Uh, it's called Murder Trials. It's just his the speeches he made, and I think mostly in defense of murderers. I don't know if he was prosecuting any murderers or not. Um, and what what interested me about this, and why I paid the full price for the book, when we have so many wonderful secondhand books going around. Um, was just the task he's up against. He's, he ha he's, he's out to persuade. And I wanted to see how he did that. I want to know how he goes about it. What are, what are the tactics he, he takes or the tacks he takes? Um, and I actually haven't you know, read very far beyond the first paragraph. Uh, let me just read you the first sentence. You must find it very surprising, judges, to see all these notable orators and eminent citizens firmly rooted in their seats, whereas I, on the other hand, am standing up here and addressing them. So he's, he's humbling himself to begin with, and I presume he goes on in that vein before he finally begins to lay out the arguments in defense of uh, Sextus Rocius. Um, I think this is for law students, actually, or people interested in that kind of thing. And every Every speech has an introduction describing the circumstances and, uh, you know, surrounding the trial and what Cicero and kind of critiquing his speech and all that. I haven't read very much in the book, but I was drawn to it. Another one, Eminent Victorians by Lytton Strachey. Anybody ever read this book? One, one person. My father recommended this book to me for years, and I finally got it secondhand somewhere kind of falling apart and I just recently opened it and I liked the uh, style very much and so I, I'm continuing to read from the middle let me just read you the first paragraph about Florence Nightingale everyone knows the popular conception of Florence Nightingale the saintly self-sacrificing woman the delicate maiden of high degree who threw aside the pleasures of a life of ease to succor the afflicted the lady with the lamp gliding through the horrors of the hospital at Scutari and consecrating with radiance, with the radiance of her goodness, the dying soldier's couch. The vision is familiar to all. But the truth was different. The Miss Nightingale of fact was not as facile fancy painted her. She worked in another fashion and towards another end. She moved under the stress of an impetus which finds no place in the popular imagination. A demon possessed her. Now demons, whatever else they may be, are full of interest. And so it happens that in the real Miss Nightingale, there was more that was interesting than in the legendary one. There was also less that was agreeable. Now, I think those are very wonderfully constructed sentences. And I'm, I'm interested in hearing more, even though it's a very easy way to begin a biography of someone. Say, we have the popular picture and it was all wrong. Still, there are things, I mean, the idea that when he says, demons, whatever else they may be, are full of interest. I'm, a, I'm attracted to his mind. And I want to know more, as much about what interests him and what he will choose to tell me about as I am interested in Florence Nightingale. More so, in fact. And I'm very happy with the way he makes his sentences and the words he uses. So I want to, I want to keep with it. Another one. Uh, a passage to India. I 
saw this it was in the used bookstore. I must have read several titles of Ian Forster. You know, when I was a kid, or you know, in my twenties, um, I didn't particularly remember this one. But I, I was in the bookstore. I opened it up, and I, this is the page. Seems to be bent this way. It opens up to page ninety-nine, and I read Chandrapur. Let me see. Down in Chandrapur, the Nawab Bahadur waited for his car. He sat behind his townhouse, a small, unfurnished building which he rarely entered, in the midst of the little court that always improvises itself round Indians of position. Now that, that's why I bought the book. I bought it because of the phrase. The little court that always improvises itself around Indians of position. Then it goes on. As if turbans were the natural product of darkness, a fresh one would occasionally froth to the front, incline itself towards him, and retire. He was preoccupied. His diction was appropriate to a religious subject. Nine years previously, when first he had had a car, he had driven it over a drunken man and killed him and the man had been waiting for him ever since. The Nawab Bahadur was innocent before the God and the law. He had paid double the compensation necessary, but it was no use. The man continued to wait in an unspeakable form close to the scene of his death. None of the English people knew of this, nor did the chauffeur. It was a racial secret communicable more by blood than speech. He spoke now in horror of the particular circumstances. He had led others into danger. He had risked the lives of two innocent and honored guests. He's thinking about a, or talking about a, a small auto accident he'd just been in. Well, this, that passage fascinated me. It's so exotic and it's so wonderfully written. I really like that, uh, as if turbans were the natural product of darkness, a fresh one would occasionally froth to the front, incline itself towards him and retire, sitting out on the porch or behind his house at night. Um, so I've gone back to the beginning of the book and I'm reading it and I'm, I've actually got quite a ways into it. I am very happy with the way he writes. And I'll continue to read it. I think I'm getting around to something here, but just bear with me. Uh, another one, Cities of the Plain by Cormac McCarthy. Now this one I waited and waited and waited and waited for. And uh, in fact, this was kind of, this. This one, as I understood, it was really the first that he wrote of his Border Trilogy. He wrote a screenplay that was never produced uh, called Cities of the Plain. And uh, then he went on and wrote the other two, uh, All the Pretty Horses and The Crossing. Crossing. Yeah, and, and I, I came late to uh, reading Cormac McCarthy. It wasn't until he'd already published uh, All the Pretty Horses, but I got around reading it. And I am fascinated with the kind of commitment he makes um, to his prose and the, and the rules he sets for himself. I don't think I could list, well, I probably could go through a book and list them all, but I haven't. Um, but he, like in these Border Trilogy books, he seems to have decided that there are things he's going to do and things he's not going to do. For instance, uh, he's not going to tell you what anybody's thinking. He's not going to do anything internal. He will only tell you what they're doing and let you hear what they're saying. Um, and that is a, you know, that's a bizarre commitment for a writer to make. 
I don't know if I don't know why he does it. I you know nobody can get a hold of this guy. Uh, I tried to once find out what it was on his mind, but it's not to be done. Um, let me read you just the beginning. Well, okay, so I waited and waited for this book, and then finally it came out. I bugged my editor and my agent to get me the galley proofs before it was published, but they weren't able to do it. Then I bought the book, and I read about 30 pages, and then, you know, it wasn't because I didn't like it, but for some reason I just got sidetracked, and I haven't read any more of it since. Just recently I picked it up and started reading the beginning again. Let me just read you the first uh, paragraph. Too. They stood in the doorway and stomped the rain from their boots and swung their hats and wiped the water from their faces. Out in the street, the rain slashed through the standing water, driving the gaudy red and green colors of the neon signs to wander and seethe, and rain danced on the steel tops of the cars parked along the curb. Damn if I ain't half drowned, Billy said. He swung his dripping hat. Where's the all-American cowboy at? beginning of the book. Now he is, I'd say, probably my favorite writer, at least right now, um, simply because he is, he, you know, you can't call him pretentious. He's way, way beyond that. He's, he, he pretends to the throne, but he, you know, he seizes it too, put it that way. Another one, this came from the 50 cent pile. It's called The Senses of Animals and Men by Loris and Marjorie Milne. It was written, published in 1948. And it's teaching me so much about writing, not, not because of its style, but because of what it's, what it's saying about senses. Let me just read you the third paragraph. Our skins let us know whether the air is humid or dry, whether surfaces are wet without being sticky or slippery. From the uniformity of slight pressure, we can be aware how deeply a finger is thrust into water at body temperature, even if the finger is encased in a rubber glove that keeps the skin completely dry. Many other animals with highly sensitive skins appear able to learn still more about their environments. Often they do so without employing any of the five senses Aristotle knew. The first sense to be measured quantitatively was none of the famous five. A century ago, Ernest Weber tested his own ability and that of others to tell which was the heavier of two weights held one in each hand. He discovered that this sensitivity is relative and not absolute. Most people can judge that an object weighing 82 grams, or 2.89 ounces, is heavier than one weighing 80 grams, or 2.82 ounces, or that 4.1 pounds is more than 4.0 pounds, or 41 pounds more than 40. Any lesser difference is beyond the limits of our sense of weight. Now, that, that is just fascinating to me. Um, let me explain to you what they're saying in case you didn't get it. The, you can you can tell the difference between something that weighs 80 grams and something that weighs 82 grams in your hands. But it's the percentage of the difference that you're able to detect, not 
the actual weight. So if it's 40 pounds, you can't tell the difference between 40 pounds and two grams. You can, you can tell the difference between 40 pounds and 41 pounds, which is about uh, a little more than 2%. You can sense a little more than 2% difference. To be informed of all of this stuff, is it's breaking my head to learn that how many senses we actually have. They're, they say in here, for instance, that uh, people who work in fabric shops can tell the difference between two fabrics if they're blindfolded and they, they have a stick in their hand, they can touch it with one stick, uh, touch one piece of fabric with a stick and then touch another piece of fabric blindfolded with a stick. And they can tell the difference, they can tell which, what kind they are. And they've actually measured how long of a touch it takes and it's very small, just a second or so. And it, it teaches me that I have to be, that I have to pay a lot of attention to what I'm sensing, what I'm feeling. And in order to be able to tell people a little bit more clearly what it is I want to tell them about an experience. And that's what I'm interested in doing. My, uh, I'd say my goal is what uh, Joseph Conrad said. I want to make you see only this, but it is everything. It's a beautiful passage that, he wrote a novel called The Nigger of the Narcissus, and he, uh, he wrote an introduction to it as he did to many of his books. Um, most of these introductions appear to be directed at the critics of his last book. You know, he, it's like he's pretty shameless, you know. Uh, and just as an aside, I would urge you never to answer any of you. If you publish a book and there are reviews, do not write in to the publication criticizing the review of your book. Just let it go. Everybody else probably has too. In any case, uh, the introduction to the nigger of the narcissus is a great statement of uh, his goals as uh, a writer of fiction. And it's one of my, I've now passed the craft lecture. The craft lecture is over. I'm now in the art lecture. Um, it's one of my inspirations to read that introduction over and over again. There are, let's say three, I think there are three things I try and remember, three little quotes. One is from Henry James. Uh, and I had this on my wall for a long time and I'll probably have it on my wall again. He said, uh, we do what we can, we give what we have. Our doubt is our passion. Our passion is our task. The rest is the madness of art. And I, and I know what he means. There's just no, there's just no helping what we do. Once, once you start, you just have to go where you're going. There's another, there's a quatrain by Antonio Mercado. I think I mentioned this to someone I was having lunch with the other day. Um, he was an Italian poet, I believe, in the, 15th century, although I may just be quoting a line from Bob Dylan. Um, but the, the quatrain goes like this, man possesses four things that are no good at sea, anchor, rudder, oars, and the fear of going down. And I remember that every time I sit down to write, because I know that nothing 
I've taught myself about crap. It's going to do any good at all. It's, it's not going to help me now. All I can do is start swimming or continue swimming and hope that I get someplace or sail off, depending on how you want to read that metaphor. And I say many times to those who want to write novels, I've said this over and over. While others may criticize what you've produced, you will know when you finish the novel that if you get to the other shore alive, you've done everything, everything that you could have hoped for. And the ones who want to, you know, criticize the, how you got there just don't know what they're talking about. But, you know, they're paid to do it. I suppose there are worse things. Um, I don't think I've ever actually written a review myself, and I consider myself to have done most of the bad things on earth. But I don't know. Never mind. <laughs> it's something we all do sooner or later, and I probably will too. Uh, another thing I had on my wall, I can't quote uh, exactly, but it was just something I ran across. Uh, a critic by the name of Frederick Cruz had written it, and I think it may have been just a cut line in some review he was writing. Anyway, it was to the effect uh, that the best American novelists risk being unintelligible and incoherent in order to make something new. I, I try to remind myself sometimes when I'm afraid that I may be treading out into uh, seas that are way beyond anybody's depth, including my own, that this may be, I may be on the way to something new, so I, can, I should be patient. Let me tell you uh, my four W's, too. In reporting, uh, I understand it's five W's, right? What is it? Who, where, what, when, why? It should be six, why not? <laughs> but anyway, what, who, what, where, when, why? And I don't know, is there a how? Yeah, yeah well, you know, all right, five W's and an H. That really screws up the symmetry. But anyway, I have four W's, and actually three of them all stand for right. But uh, my little rules are right naked, right from exile, right with blood, and the fourth W is wait. Shall I explain those? Let me see. What... The idea of writing naked is very important to me. I, I would like to imagine myself like setting up my desk out in an intersection someplace with no clothes on and just starting to write. And under those circumstances, what have I got to lose? What have I got, what have I got to hide? I might as well tell it like it is because I'm out here in this intersection stark naked anyway. So just let me go ahead and be as truthful as I can. and as true to what's in me as I can be. Writing from exile. Let me see how I can explain that. The idea is to think of myself as, as having been banished from this world I'm writing about and to try and remember the way a prisoner would, you know, or an exile would remember the place he can't get back to to write about it that way would 
that much care and that much love and, and with that much willingness to savor the details of what I'm writing about as if it had been taken away from me. And now I can really see it because I can never get back to it. That's the way I want to, I want to handle the materials that I'm working with. Just the everyday, the senses, the, the uh, sights, the sounds, the voices, as if I can never get back to them. With real love. And writing with blood, by that I mean as if I'm using up some material that is extremely precious so that I don't waste my time or the reader's time or words or ink, which I'm thinking of as blood, to deal with it as if it were hardly expendable, extremely precious. And the fourth, my fourth W is to wait, which is the hardest thing. We were talking about that in my class a little bit this morning. And I think I said that uh, somehow it gets easier to wait when you're older. When, when actually I find, you know, presumably I have less time now than I did when I was 20 years old, but I was in much more of a hurry to get things written when I was 20. Wanted to get finished. And now I'm willing to wait until whatever it is that's missing from a piece comes. And that may take years in some cases. And in fact, it usually does take years. I think I've written, I wrote one book, uh, which I think is in contention for my worst book, um, in uh, three or four months. <laughs> yes, we're waiting now. And that, I, I don't know why it was such a short project. It just came out fast, and I don't think I knew what I wanted to do, except I was kind of interested in... Uh, person's voice it was in the first person um but otherwise i don't think any of my novels has taken less than eight or ten years two of them have taken 12 years and this is obviously you know i don't spend 12 years on one and then 12 years on the next i'm writing things all at the same time um but uh like between eight and 12 years seems to be about right for me and, it, you know, the waiting is hard. It's, it's nice to have several projects going at once so that I can leave one and get involved in another. But, uh, well, you know, now it suddenly occurs to me why it's easier to wait as I get older. And that's because the, I have experienced the rewards of waiting more and more as time goes on. It, I see how it pays off. So I'm better able to do it than I was when I was young. Yes. Well, I just, I'm, you know, as you can probably sense already from this little talk we're giving, I'm completely undisciplined, you know, and I, so there isn't any, I don't know when, what anything's time for anything. I just, you know, the whole object of my existence is to do whatever the hell I want in any given moment. 
And it's working out good. The writing game is very good for people like that. So yeah, I just, you know, if I'm interested, I want to write something, you know, I'm interested in this or that character and I work on it for a while and then, you know, I'm on to something else. It's a very childish approach in a way. You know, my editors, you know, their chief function is to change the dates on contracts. You know, that's what most of our conversations are about. You know, the fact that I am two years late on a deadline. And then, you know, things have to be altered. They're, most of them have been very kind about that. Although my current editors at HarperCollins, and it was just a couple of years ago that they actually like dumped a whole load of books that were laid on their deadlines, which really got me going, you know, for a little while anyway, until it seemed like things had blown over. And then I went back to more normal procrastinating. But uh, yeah, to repeat the answer, I, I don't know when it's time. I just, you know, I'm just dabbling around. Um, I'm glad you asked the question because uh, we're at that part now. It's sort of, yes. Lately, uh, I've tried to pare things down a little bit, or I've been more aware, I think, of how the information is coming, you know, and how the dialogue is proceeding. This probably has to do with getting involved a little bit in screenwriting and uh, the fact it has everything to do with that. Because they're telling you, you know, you only have 120 pages. So whatever you want done in a scene has to be done concisely, done fairly quickly. And that became a concern. And then I became interested in doing that in the dialogue in my uh, fiction as well. But it wasn't always that way, and it doesn't, and it's not really always that way now, but it is something that's a little bit more of a concern. Is that an equivocal enough answer for you? Equivocal and wishy-washy enough? Yes. Yeah, in the writing, to feel that, you know, it's that if I wait long enough, something, the right thing will come along where there's only a blank. I'm, I'm proceeding along, everything seems to, be, seems to be fine, and then suddenly I encounter this big silence. And, you know, suddenly the blankness of the page is everything, and I don't know how to improve on it. And, you know, I, I've learned that, that I'll be reward, I'll be more happy with what I finally put on the blank page if I'm willing to wait. I'll see how it all fits in together. And my life will provide me with inspiration and so on. And, that, and it really does work that way for me. But I'm, you know, this is the art kind of writing. It's not the, uh, the other kind. I don't, I don't even know what the other kind is. It seems to me the only other kind of writing I really know about is uh, you are in the CIA for about 40 years. 
And then you get out and you write a completely unbelievable book about the CIA where the spy is like James Bond and those guys aren't really like that. I mean, what, what are they doing? Why do they do that? Why don't they write a book about what it's really like in the CIA? I guess they're just too... Yeah, but that's, that's my idea of a commercial writer, somebody who has some kind of life experience and has thought about things, and, you know, sort of has contacts in the world and, and can get a publishing contract and is reasonably educated and, you know, seal with language and writes a thriller. That's my idea of commercial writing. I'm, I'm sure there's all kinds of other stuff. And it's made into movies. Or like John Grisham, same kind of thing. That, that's his name, right? He's had experience with the law and puts it to work. I think those are a little more believable. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this is a fascinating book. There's, you know, there's, what about the hair thing? The hair thing is just, you know, it really gets me about the hair. Like, uh, where is this thing about the hair? Okay. When a man flexes his wrist or a woman with flowing hair turns her head, many hairs are displaced enough to change the pressures in the skin and around the hair follicles. Luckily, we ignore the changes and fail to be disturbed by them. But if a weight of only a thousandth of an ounce be added as a pressure at the end of a hair three-eighths of an inch long, it will bend the bristle as though it were a lever and alert us. We notice immediately if a person or some object touches a hair and bends it or interferes with its customary bending and we move. I mean, that stuff, that would actually aid you considerably in writing a thriller, I think. No. Yeah. True. <laughs> well, I suppose they're contradictory if they were real. But they're just modes of thought, you know, modes of approach. Um, the first time I wrote a screenplay, which was from a novel of mine. And a couple of independent guys gave me a small amount to write it. And, uh, and I, I think I must have gone and gotten a book or something you know, about how to write screenplays. And it was wildly different from the book. Because as, as soon as I got into it, I saw, you know, well, I've already written the book. And I can't seem to really just write it again. So I got, you know, it was really different. Same kind of basic story, and the characters were doing the same things, but there were all these little events and things and so on that weren't in the original book. And then I got with them, and they sat down with me, and they, they got out the book, and they said, look, take this out of the book and put it here, and then take this out of the book and put it there. And by the time I was done with them, I had basically just transposed the book into screenplay form, you know, dropping a lot of words and superfluous stuff you know, where necessary, uh, making transitions that were cinematic uh, or easier to shoot, and things like that, that was directed by them. I mean, they understood these things a little better than I. They taught me a great deal. And, uh, yeah, so I guess in answer to your question, I did use a little bit of a book, but I actually had some people hold my hand. I was first doing that. 
Well, it seems we are at an end. Unless you have, I beg your pardon. It can't be. Why not? Uh, all right. What? I, if you have another question. Uh, well, okay. I'll I'll ask you a question. <clears throat> Is it true that every seven years your cells are completely replaced in your body? Is there someone who can speak with some authority on that? I mean, yeah, they're like half the audience goes like this. And then I'd say, can anybody speak with authority? Why? What, what, are you a biologist or something? Okay. Okay. So we really don't go completely to dust every seven years, huh? Okay. Yeah, we should find somebody else. Oh, ah. every seven years, huh? two. Oh, great. That's the, that's the one I was most worried about. Oh, you go through a different, through a change, you know, seven year itch, you know, all that. Well, that may be so. I don't know. I will share with you some other things. During question and answer sessions, I generally like to ask questions. I'll share with you a couple of things that I've learned. You've probably wondered, what is the little worm doing in the bottom of the mezcal bottle? Why do they have that? Well, I was informed at one of my readings during the question and answer session that the mezcal is made from the, the yucca plant. Is that right? Yucca or agave, I don't know which. But occasionally a worm would, you know, it's eaten by these worms, and occasionally one of those worms would get it, end up in the bottle of mezcal, and it was considered very good luck. So eventually they just start putting it in there, you know, like a fortune cookie. You never get one that says, you know, gets what? You know, you're bankrupt by midnight, you know, or something like that. They don't do, they all give you good fortunes. And that's what the, the worm is doing at the bottom of the mezcal bottle. It's not required for the fermentation process or anything like that. Yeah. And I could tell you the difference between a land mile and nautical mile, but it had to be written down for me, so I don't have that. Another question that I've asked, if there are any law enforcement people present, what is the real amount over the speed limit that you can go? without getting busted. That's sort of a real weird question in Montana because the, the whole speed limit thing is very strange. But in most states where we have a speed limit, that's something we all want to know. Is it five miles over or is it a percentage of the posted speed limit or what? Anybody? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I guess we have to just experiment, keep, you know, revising downward. Oh yeah, if you're from out of state, yeah. <laughs> I like I like the way you say that. Really? Not when I was in Iowa. Maybe it was. I don't. Know. Oh, that's true. 
if it's if you're going in a straight line, it's a little bit. No, I, I'm really into, you know, the atmosphere of a place when I write. I'm very interested in that. And, and uh, but it's, you know, part of that writing from exile idea comes from my experience, which is that I actually do that. After I leave a place, then I'm better able to write about it. I'm remembering it and savoring it in a different way. And now I'm in Idaho now. I've been there 10 years. I am only now just beginning a story that's set there in, in North Idaho. And it's one of the, you know, I've started other stories, then I end up leaving. Maybe I'll end up leaving Idaho. But, yeah, it's not, it's not that I'm in a place and then looking around and getting the info, you know, the flora and the fauna and all that. It's more an act of memory. Yeah, that makes sense to me, but I, you know, couldn't venture a guess as to why it is. I, I can believe it though. Okay. Yeah, I was just about to say, what if you didn't like it? Mine was kind of cute. <laughs> what is that? Yes. Okay. Well, I was astonished. I think I actually did quote it exactly, but now I wonder if I can. It's, uh, we, uh, we do what we can. We give what we have. Our doubt is our passion. Our, yes. Our passion is our task. The rest is the madness of art. The rest is the madness of art. Am I leaving something out? Now see, I'm convinced. Ah, darn it. I don't know. Probably getting mixed up with something Winston Churchill said. <laughs> yes. Well, I think he's talking about the, the, the doubt about ever being able to say what's in us. Um, but you know what? I, I have not found the, uh, you know, the piece that that was part of. 
I, it, it might be in the art of fiction, and I just went over it uh, without noticing it. But um, so I don't know. You know, in context, it might be a lot clearer what he means. It's got a great ring to it, though. Well, social hour is approaching. So, uh, I think we can bust this up and go uh, prepare to socialize. Unless there are, you know, one last question or anything like that. Thank you very much for coming.